Hi, my name is Nikki. My name is Charlie. And you're listening to Bed Bed Crime Crime Stories, a weekly true crime podcast where we pour ourselves a drink and take turns telling each other the stories that keep us up at night. True crime headlines. True crime headlines. No, we'll workshop it. I was like, we'll get get there. I was like, that was very, uh, (laughs) very fancy. It was trying to be fancy this time. I liked it. I'm trying. (laughs) So my first true crime headline is from daily dot. um, It's called daily dot dot com. Daily dot dot com. Yes. Got it. So this was posted on December 3rd, 2020. And it says YouTuber allegedly kills pregnant girlfriend during live stream. And viewers uh, reportedly urged him to do it. I saw the headline and I actually scrolled past it. So I'm very interested to hear a little bit about this yeah so basically they are from russia and he locked his girlfriend out on their porch and it's like freezing in russia and she was in her underwear oh my god and i guess one one uh one it says one viewer paid him a thousand dollars so that they could watch him torture her which i'm just like i don't understand why kids do this shit (laughs) that's insanity wow like the things that kids do for like views and popularity is just it's very weird it's unbelievable yeah it's unbelievable um so it says a russian youtuber was reportedly arrested after he live streamed himself torturing his pregnant girlfriend to um to death which i didn't know that she was pregnant i read another article and i didn't realize that she was pregnant at the time but that's all that this article says i know that there is a little bit more information that's coming out wow yes dang crazy and then the other one that i found because we all know how i love disney yes i do know that we know Um, that now because you just told everybody yeah but i know that i love disney i'm obsessed so my next story um is from fox news uh this was published what six it says it just gives me the published date it doesn't give me the actual date it just says published six days ago what was six days ago math Hold on. Today's the 9th. The 3rd. December 3rd. Yeah, so December 3rd that this was posted. So it says, I don't know why you just put the publish six days. Why wouldn't you just put the date? (laughs) That's silly, yeah. Make people do math. That's silly. I don't know why I said it like that. That's silly. That's silly. Okay, so Pretty Ricky member Blue Smith arrested after punching Walt Disney World employee. I heard about that. Because he pretended to fake sneeze and say coronavirus. That's technically domestic terrorism. It is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's 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 the same as like spitting on someone. Yep, it's like it's considered like assault, especially during a global pandemic. Yeah, particularly so, through a global pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. So he, I guess, he walked by an employee at Animal uh, Kingdom to get onto one of the rides or something, and he basically sneezed and said coronavirus, and then basically the employee approached him because he didn't find it to be funny. No. Because it's not. It's you not. Can do it with I your, was going to say, because it's not. Yeah. You can do it with your friends when you cough or you sneeze and stuff, because yeah. they know you. Correct. You can't do it around people that you don't know. I feel weird coughing around people I don't know right now, because, you know. Yeah. Even, even if something goes down the wrong way, you're just like, oh, God. <laughs> like, I swear to God, I'm just dying. It's fine. <laughs> like, earlier when I ate my chicken tender and it went down the wrong tube, and I was like, oh. Good. <clears throat> but those are my stories. My nice. true crime headlines. Nice. It's funny because those are two headlines that I had seen the actual headline, but did not know the full story. So, that is, uh, so thank you. Thank People, you for infor- thank you for informing yeah. us, Nikki. Which also, uh, the guy from Pretty Ricky was banned from Disney because Disney can ban you for doing yes. things like that because it is a private property. Correct. That they're allowed to have 
their own rules set in place. Like even if like a county doesn't have something set, if it's a private business, mm-hmm. they're allowed to have their own. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's yeah. why like you can still. So like, for example, here in Florida, there's no Florida mask mandate, but I think Publix still makes you put on them. Like they still request <coughs> that you wear them. Most places do. Right, right. And it's fully within their right to do that because they are yeah. a private business. Correct. <sighs> oh, so. the world. Oh, the world today. It's a glorious place to be. Okay. There's something wrong with the world today. I, I don't, don't know, know what it is. Something wrong with the world. It's Aerosmith. Okay. So. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm like, I only know like the Armageddon Aerosmith song. <laughs> That's okay. Like, It's a good song. It is a good well, song. The Armageddon one and the song that we were saying. Living, mm-hmm. living on the Edge. Mm-hmm. Living on the Edge by Aerosmith. If for those listeners out there that did not know, um, look it up on the Spotify. You will not be disappointed. Um, actually, the Aerosmith Big Ones album is one of my favorite albums of all time. Anyway, super derailed. Apologize for that. Um, okay, so you may recall two weeks ago that Jovi kind of challenged Nikki and I to, I was calling it the Decades Challenge. So we had to pick from Jovi's hand because we couldn't find a there was there was no hat readily available no, to us skull. oh that's right we pulled it out of the skull that's right that's right that's right that's right a, a, a ceramic, ceramic skull skull so we were pulling out decades from the ceramic skull and I chose the 50s so I was able to find this story from the 50s which just interesting interestingly enough I happen to have read this story once before in my life but there's like a twist ending to it that I didn't know because something happened between the last time I had read the story and now. So it's it's very, very interesting. And Ooh, so is any is any of this current? Um, kind of. Yeah, it is kind of current. Uh, but the the initial action of our story takes place back in 1957. So um, it's it's a very interesting story. And this is the murder of Maria Rudolph. I am here to tell you the story. I feel like this name's familiar, but I can't place it. You Okay, so I read this. So, okay, let me tell you my sources really quickly. So yeah. my sources for this is Mystery Confidential, which is available on medium.com. The other source was the New York Post.com. And then my main source for the article was CNN.com. And back in the early aughts, actually it was the late aughts. It was like 2008-ish, 2009-ish maybe. Um, CNN did a long form report on this story on their website. So it wasn't available on the sh- on any TV show. It was only on the website. Mm-hmm. And they did like this long investigative journalism story on this crime. And I mean, like pages and pages and pages of CNN.com dedicated to this story. And... I remember the job that I had at the time, we happened to have like a lot of downtime and we spent a lot of time reading articles online. And that was kind of around the time in my personal life that even though I had always been been interested in true crime, that was when I started really getting into like researching and learning stories and really kind of digging a little bit more deeper and understanding like the truth behind a lot of the stuff that you just hear about in the news. Mm -hmm. And this was one of the first like long form true crime stories that I had read for myself. So that's all I knew about this from like over 10 years ago. So when I happened upon it again, I'm like, oh, I'll tell that story. It's very interesting. And then there's this added twist to it, which is kind of cool because it was a surprise to me. All this to say, the murder of Maria Rudolph. So 
Our story begins after dinner time on Tuesday, December 3rd, 1957. So we just passed the anniversary of this crime. Setting the scene, we are in Sycamore, Illinois, which is a small town in Illinois. Seven-year-old Maria Rudolph and her friend and neighbor, Kathy Sigmund, who or Kathy Sigmund, who's eight years old, went outside to play uh, because the snow had just began to fall. It was the first snowfall of the winter season. So the girls went outside. They're playing near the corner of their street. A young man approaches them. He has blonde hair, narrow face, and says he has big teeth and a high voice. He approached and asked the girl if they were having fun. And then he asked them if they wanted piggyback rides. He introduced himself as Johnny. That's the only name that he gave to the girls. What a creepy thing to offer. Correct. Right. Piggyback rides. Super creepy. Just I'm like, not even candy. Like, do you guys want piggyback rides? Like very high contact. It's creepy. Yeah, for sure. Oh, it's like when you meet a guy for the first time and they just want to hug you because they want to feel your boobs. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever had that happen to you? Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm glad I'm not alone. I just thought that was always so weird. You are not. <laughs> Sorry, I was swallowing my wine and trying not to spit it all over. Sorry, my no, you're fine. That's that's where I go when and like, they want to hug you because they want to feel your boobs. Yeah, girl. People want to unnecessarily touch you. Yeah, for real. Don't let them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, pro tip number one: don't let them. Absolutely. Yeah. No, for sure. Um, okay, so he asked the girls if they wanted. I'm sorry, that was great. <laughs> don't let them. Okay. I've always had big boobs. Every like all the guys in middle school wanted to hug me because of it. Stop hugging my boobs. I just like then I wanna you don't wanna hug me because you won't like my eyes are up here. Yeah. (laughs) Not down here. Um so he introduces himself as Johnny, and that's all he told the girls, and he let the girls know that he was twenty four years old and he wasn't married. Again, very strange. But of course they're seven and eight years old. Like to us as adults you hear that stuff and you're like oh no run 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 but like but when you're, you're a seven-year-old eight-year-old kid like all right johnny i'll take a piggyback ride I'm like be you, honest. You, don't, you don't think about that stuff I'm right? be honest. i'm like i've been a 10 year old that's had a crush on like a 16 year old legit yeah legit. or even like a 20 year old yeah my very first slow dance i ever had i honestly don't know how old i was i may have been six was with a boy who was a neighbor of my parents' friends. And he was like in college. No, I think he was in high school. I was in love. And he was just trying to be nice. And he was trying to be nice. He like slow danced with me to um, hold on, hold on, hold on. It'll come to me. Stand by me. The old stand by me, stand by me. Right. To this day, I hear that song. I'm like, oh, Nikki. Like, still to this day, I, like, he's, like, legit. His name was years. Nikki, too? Yeah. Aww. Aww. Cute. <laughs> Cute little Italian boy, Nikki. Not you, Nikki. Other Nikki. Okay, anyway. Johnny, 24 years old, not married. Here we are. Creepy. Okay. Very creepy. So, little Maria took the first piggyback ride from Johnny. She was laughing. He kind of, like, took her about, like, 20 feet away and then back again. Right. Seemed harmless at the time. When he put her down, Johnny told Maria that she can have another ride if she brought a doll with her. So Maria runs home to go get her doll so she can get another piggyback ride. And Kathy stayed behind with Johnny. So Johnny asked Kathy if she wanted to go around the block or take a ride in a truck, a car or a bus. She said no. And then when Maria turned with a doll, 
Kathy was going to go home because she was getting cold. She wanted to go get her mittens. So she left Maria there. I remember this story. Yeah. So she left Maria there with Johnny and went home to go get her mittens. By the time she returned back to the corner, just a few moments, a couple minutes maybe, they were gone. Long gone. Vanished. So Kathy starts running up and down the street. She's yelling for Maria. There's no sign of her or Johnny. She rushes back home to Maria's house. So she goes back to Maria's house and meets up with Maria's older brother. So Maria's older brother, Chuck, he was in the back of the house playing records with his friend, Randy. Like, I just feel very like I close my eyes because, you know, it's the 50s. And I think of. Uh, Pleasantville, like the movie Pleasantville. Mm-hmm. And like, I just think of like the kids with the glasses. Like, yeah, the, the, the thick black rimmed glasses and the slick back hair, and they're listening to their records. You know, it's just like, oh, God, it just gives me this vision in my head. So she meets up with Maria's older brother, Chuck, playing records with his friend Randy and tells him, you know, Maria's missing. I can't find her. I, I've looked for her everywhere. I can't find where she is. So the boys take off and they take off running. They go down the road and there's an elementary school that's nearby. As they're circling around the elementary school, they see a police car drive by, but they don't flag it down. So they head back to the house. And by the time the two boys get to the house, Kathy had already told her mother about Johnny and Maria's disappearance. So Maria's mother, Francis, and Kathy's mother are like exchanging frantic phone calls back and forth. Okay, does Kathy have any more information? What does he look like? What did he say? You know, what was Maria wearing? Like things like that, right? So like just phone calls back and forth, back and forth, comparing notes. Maria's father seemed to kind of hesitate calling the police right away because about a year earlier, Maria had walked several blocks away to the cemetery nearby, um, kind of just like wandered off while she was playing absentmindedly. And she turned up back at the house just as they were organizing a search party (laughs) to go search for her. So like at first he was kind of hesitant, like she's going to show up. She she's wandered off before she might be doing that again. But Francis... Uh, Maria's mom was like, no, this is different. There was another person there. This older kid was with them. We're going to call. We're going to get the police involved. So she wound up driving to the Sycamore police station. um, And it was about 8, 10 p.m. when she arrived at the police station. So Chuck, the brother, the older brother, Chuck Rudolph, he continued looking for his sister, uh, but he wasn't really sure how concerned he should be yet. Because again, similar, she kind of wanders, right? She's she's a playful kid and she just kind of took off sometimes and you know she walked to school every morning so she was really comfortable in the neighborhood and comfortable walking and around this is on why own. we have helicopter parents now <laughs> legit for like- real for real yeah so he kind of circles the neighborhood he's on his way back to the house and there's like an alley that runs behind their house and there an- next to a neighbor's garage another person in the neighborhood found the doll that Maria had with her so they know now that there's definitely something fishy going on. There's reason to be concerned. So that evening, uh, men knock on the door of Ralph and Eileen Tessier. Yes. Can I just state how weird it is that he would ask her to go get a doll to bring with her and then leave the doll? Yeah. I think it was one of those things. And believe me, this is pure speculation. I don't know. A, I don't kidnap children, well, yeah. so I don't know the M.O. And B, it was 1957, I wasn't there. So, <clears throat> but my assumption is, let her go get a dolly, because that might comfort her. 
if I take her, like, it's something comforting to her if I take her away. That's the only thing I can yeah, think of. But so, then you would think that you would at least keep it with like, her. Like, hold on to that kid. Yeah, for real. Either so, that or he's just trying mm. to see how devoted she would be. Mm. I don't uh, know. It's strange. It's definitely strange. I just thought that was odd. Mm-hmm. I don't know. She's mad. We're we're recording the podcast, actually, at my house tonight, which we normally do not. And my dog is... She's living her best she's life. Mad. She wants to. She wants to snuggle. She's like, it's time for you guys to stop talking about people that are getting hurt and come snuggle with me instead. She's just going to have to wait. So I can hear tippy tappies outside the door. So that evening, a couple of men from the neighborhood knock on the door of Ralph and and Eileen Tessier. So Ralph runs the neighborhood hardware store and the men wanted him to open the store so they could gather up flashlights, lanterns, things that they needed to search because it was obviously dark out. It's December. Man, the 50s. It's wild. Right? I know. Like, pick up a cell phone and call them and be like, hey, open up the store, bro. Or just like, just like going to their house and being like. Can you open the store? Like, yeah. that's just... Go to the 24-hour Walmart and pick it up, right? It's just... It's the it's so difference wild. of the world is just insane. Um, so the Tessiers were a large family. They lived about two blocks away from the Rodolphs. Eileen was Ralph's Irish-born war bride who had arrived at the United States on the Queen Mary with her son, John, from a previous marriage or previous relationship. Together, the couple... The couple... Kerber, the Kerber. Together, the couple would wind up having six children together. So, Catherine, Ooh. Jeannie, I know. Oh, those Irish, man. Hey, I'm Irish, but. Dude, me too. They pop them out like I got zero. <laughs> Catherine, Jeannie, Mary Pat, Bob, Janet, and Nancy were their six children together. And then, like I said, John was a child of Eileen's from a previous relationship. So the girls resented the way that their mother favored John because he was the oldest. He was kind of artistic. He seemed to be a bit of like a dreamer and um, kind of a lone wolf, if you will. He was 18 years old at this time. And he seemed to get a pass with her even when he screwed up. So no matter what he did, no matter what he did wrong, in their mother's eyes, he could do no wrong. So... Mr. Tessier, Ralph, the owner of the hardware store, he left with the men, head to the store to gather up supplies, and then he went to join the search with them. Eileen headed over to the armory to assist the women making sandwiches, coffee, just basically gathering supplies so that way the men were comfortable as they were searching through the night. Um, the daughters and Bob stayed at home. John was not home. There's no sign of John. The disappearance of Maria made front page news in all the newspapers the next morning. Foul play was obviously suspected, but there was no clues left behind other than her doll on the ground. So that's literally the only thing that they had to go by. And obviously this mysterious Johnny, whoever this person was. At the time of their uh, of her disappearance, Maria was wearing a brown three-quarter length coat, black corduroy slacks, brown socks, and freshly polished saddle shoes. She Aww. was... I know. I used to have white and black saddle I shoes. Mean, I love saddle shoes. My grandma bought them for... Or my nanny bought them for me and my sister. We had matching black and white saddle shoes. Me, ma. So cute. She's my nanny. My Aww. nanny. Um, mommy, malls. <laughs> she was uh, she was only 43 inches tall. She weighed about 55 pounds. And she wore her hair in wavy brown bob with bangs. The man who called himself Johnny, police said, was last seen wearing a striped sweater um, that was blue, yellow, and green. He had long blonde hair that kind of curled in the front and flopped onto his forehead. So I imagine kind of mm-hmm. a um, pompadour type of hairdo. Yeah. Very Elvis curly, floppy hair. Um, already there were conf- conflicting reports about the time 
of Maria's disappearance. So was it closer to six? Was it around seven? You know, and this was obviously very important because we need to know exact accounts of the time. So if we do wind up coming across a suspect, we need to be able to corroborate some sort of an alibi or non-alibi with the times of the crime. So Sycamore's police chief, William Hindenburg, told FBI agents that Kathy Maria went out to play at 6.02 p.m., but the DeKalb County Sheriff said Maria did not call Kathy and ask her to come out to play until 6.30. This is obviously according to phone records they were able to pull. Oh. Yeah. Yay, 50s, right? Yay. Maria's mother later altered her original estimate, saying the girl should have been outside as early as 10 minutes to 6. So again, like I said, there's... A lot of conflict and like major differences in the time. You figure that's a 40 minute difference of what mom is saying at this point. But you wouldn't want to think that the phone records would be. You would think that that would be a little bit more solid evidence. But, you know, who knows? The 50s. Right. Yes. With the technology those days. So. So as the days passed, Maria's mother pleaded with the kidnapper for her daughter's safe return. She used the media to send messages to whoever might have taken her daughter. She stated that, you know, God forgives mistakes and we would too. That Maria was a nervous child. She would like bite her nails and quickly become very hysterical if things didn't go her way. So like she was like a frantic kid. She panicked a lot. So Francis had said whoever took her away must have hit her weak spot. He played with her was something that she had said, which we know is true. And the fact that Johnny did offer her the piggyback, right? So that's something that she wants. She wanted that attention, that that playmate. Um, on television, Francis delivered a message to her baby. Don't cry, Maria. Um, above all, don't cry. Don't make a fuss. We'll be with you soon. Maria's father, Michael, scolded reporters that were camped out at the police station asking for details. He said, you know, for God's sake, quit saying that she's dead. I know my daughter's still alive. No one would have any reason to kill her. And he pulled reporters aside later and said, I just want other fathers to help me look for my little girl. So Maria's doll, um, a blue hairbrush of hers, they were shipped off to the FBI lab in Washington for analysis. School books of hers, a toy oven. So probably her little easy bake oven. Oh, I know. It's just like, it's heartbreaking, right? Um, A tin saxophone and records of songs like Three Little Kittens and The Farmer in the Dell. I know. It's like all these like little kids. It's, oh, it breaks your heart. Break your friggin' heart. These are um, like things of our our children, like our yeah. our childhood. Well, and it's like 1957 was actually two years before my mom was born. So like these are things that like my mom would have had to play with, and like her brothers would have had to. play Oh, with I had an easy bake oven. I didn't get an easy bake oven until <gasps> I was like in my 20s. Are you serious? Yeah, because my mom would never let me get one. My grandpa got me one when I was little, and, and I, I remember c- making my little pizzas and my cakes. I complained about it so much that my mom finally bought it for me for my birthday in like my late twenties, and I think I made like one cookie with it and never used it again. <laughs> I think she was like, "That's why I never bought you a fucking easy bake oh, oven because you're never gonna for- use it." Well, I mean, when you're little, I mean, you're you're like, well, yeah. I can't bake, so I can put it through this. Yeah. So you're like super stoked. I used to make so much crap out of it, mm-hmm. but like when you're an adult, you're just kind of like, I mean, but did you see Kelly Clarkson? Do the easy bake oven. That crap was so funny. <laughs> so I'm obsessed with Trixie Mattel, the drag queen. Her YouTube video or her YouTube channel is like literally has been getting me through the pandemic. Like 2020, I would have been a more of a wreck than I already am if it wasn't for Trixie Mattel. Mm-hmm. And she does a whole series of baking with Trixie and it's all different 
versions of the Easy Bake Oven. Oh my god! She's done it like through the years, and for her one million, she finally got one million subscribers. <laughs> she did the original Easy Bake Oven. Oh my gosh! And baked a cake in it. I, fuck, I, fucking I was like, love I was her. dying at. Ke- She's my favorite. Did you see the Kelly Clarkson one? Mm-mm. She was making like biscuits, and she was making it all wrong, and she's like. <laughs> And they give her the instructions halfway through, and she's like, <laughs> "It was, it was so Where funny." Was I like her. I love Kelly Clarkson as me well. Me too. But Trixie Mattel, she's just my girl. Trixie, call me. <laughs> Can we be friends, please? Okay, I'm gonna have to get on this. Trixie, you, you and Katya have gotten me through 2020. Thank y'all. Thank y'all. Okay. Um, where am I? <laughs> Don't cry. Okay. So all of this stuff was sent over to Washington to be analyzed for any sort of, um, I guess, just evidence of her so that way they can track her, things of that nature, right? Mm-hmm. So her friend Kathy Sigman, who was with her when she was um, abducted, I guess is the word you would use, right? Um, found herself under 24-hour police guard. The family doctor checked her for signs of sexual molestation. The newspapers ran a picture of Kathy showing off her mittens that she was wearing that night that she like ran to get home to go get. Oh my God, this poor kid. Kathy spent hours looking over mugshots of ex-cons and what police were calling known perverts, but she never found Johnny in the pictures. She remembers the shouting reporters and flashing cameras every single time she went over to the police station to look at another lineup. She was eight. She was eight. And she said at first, um, at first she kind of enjoyed the attention, like she felt like a little celebrity, but then as the case kept going and going and going and Marie is not coming home, she felt like she was kind of put out on display. She said she recalls her mother bending down. This made me so sad for her. She recalls her mother bending down, placing her hands on her shoulders, looking her square in the eye and telling her, remember his face, Kathy. You have to remember his face because you're the only one who can catch him. You're the only one who knows what he looks like. Like, can you imagine that much pressure being put on an eight-year-old little girl? Like, how? That's awful. That's heartbreaking awful to me. So sad. Um, Authorities believe that Maria's abductor had one singular motive, and that was that he was more than likely a sexual predator. Um, The police chief was certain that nobody from Sycamore would do such a thing, that it had to be some sort of a pass, uh, somebody passing through, like a trucker or, you know, a carnival worker, something along those lines. But the FBI kind of wasn't so sure. And its investigation revealed that there was no shortage of potential suspects in Sycamore. So the police chief told reporters his men had rounded up and questioned all known sexual deviates. Uh, They investigated a local peeping Tom and followed tips about men nicknamed Commando and Mr. X. I had to put in those details because I thought that was fun. I mean, it's not fun. They're perverts. But I thought the names were fun. I'm going to be honest. I'm (laughs) one of those people that I always like. I like to get. I only like to change in my bathroom because I always feel like someone's watching me in my bedroom. Yeah. Is that weird? I all of a sudden had this random like moment the other day in my bathroom, in the master bathroom, because we have a small window in there. It has the frosting on both sides. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden, like randomly, I was doing something in there. I'm like, what if they put the frosting on the wrong way and people are totally staring at me? Oh, no. You would have been outside and you would have been able to see, right? Yeah, I'm sure I would have. I just like I always look in my window just to make sure that like nobody. I just like all of a sudden (laughs) randomly was like, people are looking at my butt. We had this conversation, I think, last weekend where, like, I know people are looking inside the house when because they're driving by because I look through the house yeah. when I'm driving by. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. when I used to walk around my apartment all the time, I'd be like, their furniture's nice. Well, that's a cute apartment. Like, you know, innocently, I'm not, yeah. like, creeping on people. But, like, when I'm walking by, I'm like, okay. 
Yeah. No, I do the same thing, especially when I was in the apartment complex. When I used oh, to walk yeah. around, I would look and I would totally look at people. Yeah, I'm like, I'm walking. I just walked like five miles around my whole entire apartment yeah. complex. I need something to stare at. There's no shame in my game. Yeah. My weird, creepy game. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> Mr. X. Commando Mr. X. Um, we have chased down countless clues and we have found exactly nothing. Um, FBI agents came and went. According to a writer for one of the Chicago papers, checking into everything with quiet persistence of bulldogs. Obviously not quiet because bulldogs. They're loud. They ain't quiet. Okay. So three days after Maria vanishes, an anonymous female caller alerted the DeKalb County Sheriff's Office to a boy named Treshner was the name that she gave who lived in the neighborhood and fit the suspect suspect's description a pair of fbi agents showed up at the tessier home on december 8th so we remember the tessiers ralph and eileen they're the ones with all the kids ralph owned the hardware store i thought his name was john so the well the tipster gave the name treshner and i think just between treshner tessier kind of sound similar plus you have john from the tessier family and then this is johnny who the kids met so What's happening here, right? Johnny's suspicious. So Johnny is a suspicious, as Bailey Sarian would say. I love her. So Ralph and Eileen Tessier acknowledged that their son John did fit the general description, but they insisted that he was not in Sycamore when Maria was taken. He was forty miles away in Rockford, Illinois, enlisting in the U.S. Air Force. Now I don't know about you guys, but whenever I hear the word Rockford, I think of the Rockford Peaches, and it makes me want to watch a League of Their Own. Anybody else? Just me. Rockford Peaches. I don't know what that is. You've never seen a league of their own. Oh my god! You need to revoke. I'm going to revoke your uterus because you're not allowed to be a woman until you watch. I don't a know league what the hell that is. A league of their own. Wait, it's is that one? The is women that the, nobody players. cries in baseball? There's no crying in baseball. Okay, yes. No, I I have seen it at least once. The best movie ever. Anyway, I, I do know that line. The Rockford Peaches. I just did it. I'm, I'm a peach. I love that movie so much. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Anyway, so phone records seem to verify their story. Someone had made a collect call from Rockford to the Tessier home um, at about 7 p.m. that night. John Tessier and his parents said that he had called for a ride home. This was the second alibi that Eileen Tessier had given for her son, however. Earlier, as as her daughters listened, she had told Sycamore police that John was home all night. Suspicious. Huh. Yep. No one questioned the young Tessier sisters, and they all kept silent. So, you know, trail kind of starts to go cold. Months are going by. There's no evidence. No one's coming forward. Nobody is fitting the timeline plus the subscription. Uh, the subscription? No. Wait. The question. timeline plus the description. Mm-hmm. So, who did she tell that he was home? The police. First, Eileen said that he was home, told the police that he was home. And then the second alibi was that he called from Rockford looking for a ride home. And this was to the police, too. Correct. Why did the police not say? Well, I guess technically the second one was to the FBI. But yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, that's when they have to start, like. Comparing notes. Because, I mean, right there, you would have been like, that's weird. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So, like I said, it's now months. There's really very little evidence, honestly, other than this mysterious Johnny person, the description that Kathy has provided, and the fact that the doll was left behind. There's no evidence. There's no no one who fits the timeline and the description of Johnny. Besides so, Johnny. Besides Johnny. But again, there's this alibi that they are that they were able to see 
Oh, yeah. Someone had made a collect call from Rockford. So they were able to see that a collect call was made from the location where they said he was. So this is corroborating his story. So there's definitely there may be somebody else out there. They were they didn't have enough to arrest him on is basically what I'm saying. Yeah. So Maria's body was found in the spring, 120 miles from her home in Sycamore. Um, a man scavenging for mushrooms found her skeletal remains tucked under a fallen tree on a farm outside of US 20 or off of US 20 outside of Woodbine, Illinois, which is not far from the Iowa border. So it's about 120 miles directly west from Sycamore. Are those the mushrooms that I think? No, I think it's just like regular foraging. Mushroom. I think oh, it's just okay. foraging. I was Maybe like, I should have used the word foraging instead of scavenging. Scavenging like, sounds more uh, nefarious. Yeah, I was like, I he was, was like, I think he was just looking for like mushrooms to eat oh okay i don't think they needed to be of the magic persuasion i didn't know if they were magic mushrooms i don't think they were magic i think they were just mushrooms i was like i would just fungi well i mean this is the 50s i was like i would just go to the store and buy them yeah <laughs> you know yeah but different 50s. time different place you know what I'm yeah it's a simpler place in woodbine illinois <laughs> I we wish. got our own mushrooms um, <clears throat> so her body had been exposed to animals and the elements and the weather and found with her body was a black and white checkered skirt or shirt. I'm sorry, a black and white checkered shirt and an undershirt and brown socks at a coroner's inquest. Um, the gentleman's name was Frank Sitar. He was a retiree from Minnesota. He kind of described the scene that he found, um, on April 26, 1958, which is when she was found. So he said at first he thought it was old deer hide. He came upon it and could see some bones. He thought that maybe somebody shot a dog. Then he looked closer and it looked like human bones. He said he noticed the jacket and still didn't really think much of it first. Because I think, again, maybe even as a coroner, you might not want to first think it's a person, right? You always want your brain is trying to like overcorrect that. So you're hiding what you're actually seeing to kind of save yourself from the trauma, right? Once he started to look forward uh, further, he noticed the hair and saw that it was, in fact, a little girl. He walked back to the car. He told his wife, which I love that he brought his wife with him, but whatever. And they drove to the farmhouse and summoned authorities. Um, there wasn't much left to her, observed James Furlong. He was a rookie coroner um, of the nearby county. Um, he was a son of a local funeral home director and never had handled a murder case before. No crime scene photos were taken, he said, because he didn't want them slobbered all over the front pages, which, again, Well, I mean, this was the 50s. A different time, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Neither the autopsy nor the inquest determined a cause of death beyond suspected foul play. Dental records did, though, eventually confirm that it was indeed the remains of Maria Rudolph. Maria was laid to rest in a funeral um, at the Evangelical Lutheran Church of St. John. Her friend Kathy was there under heavy police guard. Maria was remembered as a bright little girl who had a perfect attendance at Sunday school, which I thought is so cute. Little detail that they put in there. This little girl has entered into everlasting grace, probably on the night she was taken, said the Reverend Louis I. Gooing. Maria was taken out of life through unusual circumstances, but nothing could deprive her of God-given salvation. The disappearance and death of her best friend never left Kathy. Uh, nothing could fill the space where Maria once was. So, you know, they always, they were playmates. They were always together. Think about the kid that you played with all the time when you were that seven-year-old, eight-year-old. Like, yeah. you might not be friends with that person anymore, but if they were taken away from you during that time, just how traumatizing that would be oh, as yeah. a little kid. And, you know, she was left with extreme survivor's guilt very much a lot of survivor's guilt and an extreme social stigma of being connected to such a notorious crime. 
She states that it robbed me of my childhood. This is what she was recalling when she was an adult. She said that she was labeled. She was the girl who was with Maria. A lot of parents wouldn't let their little girls play with her. They were afraid that he'd come back and take their child from her. Isn't that awful? I know. Isn't that awful? She said she couldn't wait to get out of Sycamore. It bothered me my whole life why he took her and not me. This broke my heart. She said for years I would ask myself, was she prettier than I was? Which think about the mental state that has to put a little girl in like bad enough. You're dealing with just the trauma of your friend being taken. Yeah. Then on top of that, like the weird, the weird comparisons you start to make for, for yourself. Like why her and not me on the good side. And then why her and not me on the bad side? Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you, you start to like kind of bargain with yourself and just, oh my God, I can't even imagine the mental anguish that this little girl had to deal with at a very, very young age. And then on top of that, the added pressure that like her mother put on her of like, you need to remember his face. You're the only one who can solve this crime. Like, oh God, just so much pressure. So Kami's family did eventually move to the outskirts of town. When a young man named Mike Chapman met her at a bowling alley, his mother tried to talk him out of dating her. And he said, don't, she said, don't you know who that is? She's the one who was with Maria. Can't you find someone else? But Mike and Kathy wind up dating. They left Sycamore in 1969. They married in San Antonio, Texas. They moved around a bit. They wound up settling in Tampa, Florida for, it seemed like, quite a while before they returned back to Sycamore to care for their aging parents. And they raised three children together. So um, Kathy says her own parents were also incredibly overprotective after everything happened with Maria, which, of course, again, very understandable. Um, But as a mother herself, she went the other way. So she let her kids make their own decisions, their own mistakes. um, And the couple now lives near uh, Sycamore outside of the city. No matter where she went in her life, she said, however, she always looked over her shoulder because Johnny was still out there. So um, the case winds up going cold. So September 11, 2008. So we're, like I said, 49 years after the crime. So Janet Tessier writes an email to the Illinois State Police. She had tried to alert authorities twice before. She got no results. She said this is going to be her last try. So this is what her email wrote, or this is what she wrote in her email. Sycamore, Illinois, December 1957. Seven-year-old child named Maria Rudolph vanished. Her remains were found in another county several miles away in the spring of 1958. I still believe that John Samuel Tessier from Sycamore, Illinois, was and is responsible for her death. I've given information to the person responsible for the cold case in Sycamore. I've done this a few times and nothing is ever done. This is the last time I will mention this to anyone. I'm not going to keep doing this over and over. It's exhausting and it dredges up painful, horrible memories. She sent the email which would result finally in the reopening of the 51-year-old case. Did I do the math wrong on that? I did. 51 years old. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm an idiot. I did that wrong. Oh, I don't know fine. math. I don't know math. 51. It's literally in my notes. And I said 49 years. I literally was off by two years. I'm dumb. <laughs> well, neither of us corrected you. So. 1957. 2008. Yeah. Neither of yeah, us corrected 51 you. 51 yeah. years. I'm dumb. Okay. Sorry. Hi. I'm dumb. Okay. So finally, the reopening of the 51, not 49, year old case. John Tessier was Janet's brother. 
So, after serving in Vietnam, John Tessier settled outside of Olympia, Washington, and began a somewhat shameful civilian life. He worked as a policeman until he was arrested for statutory rape, which he wound up pleading down and avoiding jail time for. He was constantly in debt, married four times, and completely estranged from his family. Then came a day in 1993 when John's mother, Eileen, lay dying on a hospital bed on a morphine drip. She yelled for her youngest daughter, Janet, who we met just a moment ago. Damn it, Janet. Damn it, Janet. Sorry, I had to. <laughs> it's okay. That's all I can think of when I hear that name. Damn it, Janet. I love you. Um, so called for her youngest daughter, Janet, who was in the other room. Um, she she said, Mom, what you know, what's going on? And Eileen goes, Those two little girls who disappeared, John did it. John did it. So Janet's like, you know, are you talking about Maria? So Eileen said, yes, you have to tell someone you have to do something. Two days later, uh, or two days after Janet Tessier sent the email, she got the phone call that the case was reopened. So she, after 1993 was when her mother died. And it took until 2008, 15 years Yes. 15 years. (laughs) I was checking my mouth on that one. It took 15 years for somebody to finally answer her email and finally reopen the case after her mother died. Well, you have to think, like, this has been, like, it's a cold case, so you always have, like, all those other people that are out there trying to, like, give their theories, too. Oh, yeah. So she probably, like, if, like, I hate to say, it probably got lost in the mix of... Yeah. And then on top of that, like, the one thing that I when I watch like cold case files or cold justice is probably my Mm -hmm. favorite one. Well, cold justice is my favorite one. Not probably it is when I watch cold justice specifically and they go to these towns where there's these cold cases, you usually still have one or two people who are either still on the force or still involved in some way that remember or were there or Mm -hmm. were part of it in some way. And they're kind of keeping the memory of that case alive. This case is 51 years old. Probably every single police officer that was involved in that, if they are not by now, are almost deceased. You don't have anybody there pushing for that. Yeah. Shortly after his mother Eileen's death, John legally changed his name to Jack McCullough. He was unaware of his mother's confession, but his siblings had told him to stay away from the funeral. They wanted nothing to do with him. They did not want him back in town. They didn't want him anywhere near them. So at the time, he was living with his fourth wife in a retirement community up in Seattle. Police knocked on Jack McCullough's door on June 17th, 2011, and arrested him 12 days later for the murder of Maria Rudolph. Cops had no physical evidence and only one lone witness who was eight at the time and now well into her 60s, Kathy. But they did have Eileen Tessier's deathbed confession, which obliterated John's alibi. They also had a bunch of sexual abuse claims against him throughout the years and the arresting officers seven hour interrogation of Jack in which he caught him in several lies. He went on trial for the murder on September 10th, 2012 in Sycamore, Illinois. He waived his right to a jury. So the judge would decide his fate. So he said, Nope, I don't want a jury of my peers. It's up to the judge. Ooh, I hope he got a wonderful judge. (laughs) (laughs) Among those who testified were Kathy Sigmund, who in 2010 identified McCullough in a photo lineup and three jailhouse informants that said that Jack had confessed to each of them individually. It took the judge only 25 minutes to reach a guilty verdict. John Tessier McCullough was 73 years old at the time of his conviction, and his conviction marked the solving of the oldest cold case in American history. He was sentenced to life in prison. But wait, 
here's the twist. So remember I had said, I yeah. read the story and then there was a twist. That's where I, that's as far as I knew. I knew that he went to prison and that it was the solving of the oldest cold case in American history. So acting for himself, Jack filed a petition against his murder conviction, but the first was dismissed. It wasn't until the new state's attorney reviewed the evidence extensively that he discovered that for Tessier to kill Maria was impossible. And that include, re- included reviewing the collect call and the distance from Rockford to Sycamore. So the timing just was impossible because of how far away Rockford was from Sycamore. On April 2016, the murder charge was dismissed without prejudice. And on the 12th of April 2017, Jack Tessier McCullough was officially declared an innocent man and released from prison. The Maria Rudolph murder has gone from unsolved to cold to solved and back to unsolved again. And we're back at unsolved. Like, that's where we're at. That's the news. Since April 2017, it is still an unsolved cold case. And while there was a feeling of relief for Kathy and the remaining of the Riddle family when Jack was convicted the first time, there's now this big sense of injustice for Jack McCullough because he was convicted when all the evidence seemed to point away from him. There really, truly, other than the fact that his name is John and this guy happened to be named Johnny, there was really no other evidence against... Even though his mom said... He was involved. She was on a morphine drip. She could have been hallucinating. I mean, you really truly, you truly don't know. You know, I mean, you really don't know. Maria Rudolph's murder has been the oldest solved cold case in the USA and is now just unsolved. Jack is now living in a retirement community where he used to work and is currently in the process of suing law enforcement for the unfair conviction. So um, there is another suspect Kind of, um, or at least a suspected suspect. William Henry Redmond was a carnival worker, and there were numerous stories of girls seemingly going missing mysteriously whenever he was around, including a 10-year-old in Ohio and an 8-year-old in Pennsylvania. But he had no convictions because, again, didn't leave behind any evidence. So, again, creepy, weird suspicious and coincidental. Um, And it was a likely sounding suspect. Redmond is now dead and the evidence appears entirely circumstantial with extraordinarily little to go on, except for the fact that Redmond looked like Kathy's description of Johnny and has a suspicious history around him. So that is my story from the fifties, the December, 1957 unsolved cold solved unsolved murder of Maria Rudolph of Sycamore, Illinois crazy all right guys so that like i said that was kind of the end of my decades challenge that i got from jovi from the 50s uh tune in next week while nikki tells us her story from the 70s which was the decade that she pulled two weeks ago when jovi issued the challenge Mm -hmm. um so i would challenge all of you do you like that segue do you like that segue I know. I would challenge all of you to go on social media, Instagram and Twitter, Twitter and Twitter. And um, our handles is at bed crime stories. Go ahead and send us an email at bedcrimestoriespod at gmail.com. If you guys have any questions or if you have any crimes that you would like to request, hit us up on the request line. Uh, Operators are standing by to hear what you have to say. And, um, <laughs> hi, longtime listener, first time caller. I'd really like that Ted Bundy guy. Um, so, uh, what was I saying? Go ahead and rate, review, subscribe, uh, tell a friend, subscribe anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Generally share with speaking. your dog, share with your dog. We are dog friendly people around here. 
um, as you can tell from the crying and annoyance that I had all evening listening to my dogs crying. Um, but whatever you do, make sure you tune in next week for more bad crime stories. But until then, my friends, sweet, sweet dreams. Our theme song is the song Industrial Music Box by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Creativecommons.org backslash licenses backslash by backslash 3.0.